This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Welcome to Farm So Hard. have another exciting episode for you guys on pharmacogenomics. That thing that you learned in one hour in pharmacy school. We're going to talk to you about it for like 15, 20 minutes, or at least try to. Uh, my co-host for today, who's a stud and was a pain in the butt whenever I did a schedule during residency, Dr. Amanda Elchinsky. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, so I am a clinical pharmacogenetics fellow. So that includes pharmacogenetics. And so what I do is I use genetic testing in patients, past medical history, current medications. And I use it all together to actually make clinical recommendations. In addition to actually making clinical recommendations, I see these patients in the clinic and I am also building the clinical decision support system within the actual electronic health record. And so here at my current location, we use Epic. So that's a pretty broad description of what I do. Obviously, some other things I do involves teaching since I am at a teaching hospital, but regarding genetics wise, that is what I'm doing right there in the clinical setting. And where are you doing your training at? I am currently here at the University of Florida. Yeah, buddy. In Shands. (laughs) Awesome. Yes. Yes. So we finally got like another UF person. It's UF and UF hogging the lines now. Finally. All right. Um, So pharmacogenomics, every time I see the letters P and G, I'm thinking of pharmacistics and inventory management. So it's gonna be a little difficult for me to keep talking about, but uh, what is this pharmacogenomics? Can we like uh, break it down a little deeper? Yeah, absolutely. And pharmacogenomics, we can use an abbreviation of PGX is something we commonly use as well. PGX, there you go. Mm-hmm. Learn yeah. A very simple one. So I gave you the NIH definition, the very superficial definition that you probably, if you look up any manuscript, this will be in there. It's just, it's the field of research that studies how a person's genes affect how he or she responds to medication. So very simple. Um, we just, what you do is you get patient genetic testing. The samples can be via blood, saliva, um, usually a cheek cells, if you want to do it that method. And then you take those, you would genotype the patient, then you would translate them to a phenotype result, which the, you would then use to help predict a patient's expected response to a medication that's relevant. And the thing oh, about, clinic, pardon? No, go ahead. No, so you're crushing thing? it right now. First time <laughs> podcast, uh, first time podcaster, you're killing it right now. So the big thing about clinical pharmacogenomics is you have to use patients' actual, like, past medical history and current medications. That's a lot of things where students or people who are not very familiar with pharmacogenomics really do fail at, is that if a patient gets, say, CYP-TC19 testing and they have a certain result, they just treat it as black and white. So this means, yes, I can give this, but then they start to neglect everything else. And so really, pharmacogenomics is taking the clinical past medical history of that patient medications and that gene drug pair and relevant. Um, that's usually where I see mostly students really struggling or pharmacists who are just being introduced to pharmacogenomics really struggling that you can't just take the guidelines information as black and white, yes or no. And um, so like what specialties will normally like, we'll just comb through some of the specialties in general, but like what are some areas opportunities like for out on the floors and they're looking for these gene drug pairs? Do you have any mm-hmm. examples for us today? Oh, absolutely. So most certainly psychiatry is the biggest one. I personally see most patients, I see outpatient are going to be psychiatry. A lot of our inpatient psych patients will get um, pharmacogenic testing. That's going to be for CYP2D6 and CYP2C19. They are primarily responsible for metabolizing all of our SSRIs, 
some of our SNRIs, some atypical antipsychotics, as well as atomoxetine. And so they do play a big role because as we know, for anxiety and depression, it takes about four to six weeks to actually get benefit from a medication. And most, I think about half of patients really do fail that first line medication. So if we do genetic testing, we can really help minimize the chances of a patient failing that first line medication. Nice. Uh, I won't typically see those guys in the hospital, but a lot of us have like the attached psych units because I know I have one at my site and we're, and we're managing those patients chronically. Uh, what about those cardiology specialties? I know there's quite a few there. Yes. So the big one, I, most people really know about clopidogrel. I think that is the shining star of pharmacogenetics. When people think of pharmacogenetics, they think of CYP-TC19 and clopidogrel. So CYP-TC19 is really important because clopidogrel is a pro-drug. It requires a two-step bioactivation via CYP-TC19 to be active to actually have the antiplatelet effect that is desired when patients do get a stent done. So it's really important because patients who have poor metabolizer, intermediate metabolizers, and what I mean by that is when you genotype someone, there is certain alleles that have no function. So a patient has a no functional allele, that means their CYP2C19 is either decreased activity or has no activity at all, increasing the risk of having a major adverse cardiovascular event with using clopidogrel. That's the one I see that's mostly used in cardiology commonly. Every once in a while, neurology has been dipping into CYP2C19 for clopidogrel for those who patients for say a stroke. They, I've seen them get, dip into that a little bit. Um, I can't really speak too much about that because of the evidence is still growing in that field and we don't have solid recommendations at this point, but clopidogrel for post-PCI is the biggest one for cardio, cardiology. Um, there is warfarin. Warfarin is another one, but there is some limitations with that, which I'm, which is usually has to do with warfarin, as you know, is you you get to the actual dose by increasing it, then you test the INR. And so really testing for warfarin is really important at the beginning of initiating warfarin. Say your patient six months down the line and you want to order genetic testing, it may not be as useful for you since you already know how the patient's responding at that point. Those are like, you're just firing nuggets and I love it. This is what exactly <laughs> what this podcast is about. Just give me the nuggets, uh, less fluff. Um, and let's do like a quick refresher. So like something like Plavix, which is a pro drug, so if they had the allele that where it's a poor metabolizer, that basically puts them at a higher risk for an event because the drug's not going to be working. It's never going to get to its active metabolite, right? Absolutely. So it's basically having the pharmacist pay attention to the allele type and whether or not the drug's pro-drug, non-pro-drug, and ex- exa- the enzyme it's actually going to be impacted, correct? Yes. And that's a really good point that you bring that up because... Sometimes when physicians or pharmacists, they forget there's pro-drugs and there's active drugs. And so when they see these alterations in poor, or if they see a rapid metabolizer, they'll make the assumption that all drugs are active and they forget that's not always the case and that there could be a flip side. So if you think about proton pump inhibitors, and I don't mean to derail you. So those are- oh, I was just going to bring that up. I'm okay. just going to so, bring that up. Yeah. Put so, this PPI to Plavix arrest, please. So well, that's regarding, that's a meprazole. That's a whole different discussion. Um, that has to do with, more, <laughs> that has to do with some- with the CYP2C19 inhibition of omeprazole. Interestingly enough, it's actually considered a weak inhibitor of CYP2C19 omeprazole. A strong inhibitor, for example, would be like fluoxetine, so Prozac. That's a really commonly prescribed medication. It's actually a strong CYP2C19 inhibitor. But we, we, so we still have to pay attention to that and let doctors know that they are on a strong CYP2C19 inhibitor and there's the potential you may not have as much benefit. So there's always the option you can order PRUs if you are concerned about inhibition from another medication. What's a PRU? Uh, so platelet reactive unit, um, sometimes it's called the Plavix test. It's to see how well the, um, the platelet effects are happening from the antiplatelet. Uh, y'all, you're bringing me back to PGY1. I love it. <laughs> 
No. That's awesome. that's what you can do for CIP 2019. So girl, so CIP 2019 has a few phenotypes. We have the poor, intermediate, normal, rapid, ultra rapid metabolizer. So when you're poor and intermediate, you can't be using the medication because it's decreased chance of it working versus PPIs. That is an active to inactive drug. So when you have an ultra rapid metabolizer, those patients are at increased risk of the medication not working versus a poor metabolizer have an increased chance of it working. So it's kind of the opposite since it's an active drug versus clopidogrel is a prodrug. And then I'm looking here and you have a couple other drug classes. I know you talked about PPIs for a little bit, touched on that. And then you, we were talking about, I'm going to share about, more about the Zofrin because <laughs> like I, I see that it's a, a big deal. I, that's all, like the most common alert in my opinion with QGC prolongation and things like that. Can you talk about Zofrin and nausea? Yeah, absolutely. So recommendations regarding Zofran and CYP2D6 is that, so that's active to inactive. So that if a patient is something called a CYP2D6 ultra rapid metabolizer, they're at an increased risk of not actually getting benefit from the medication. So making them more prone to have nausea and vomiting because they're not getting the actual benefit versus those who are poor, intermediate, and normal, they're more likely to get benefit. Um, the evidence regarding poor and say intermediate regarding maybe risk of cardiovascular, we don't have enough evidence at this point to say they're at an increased risk. Um, we don't really have any guidance, but we can definitely tell you confidently that if you're an ultra rapid metabolizer, it has been associated with increased chances of emesis and so nausea and vomiting. Yeah. And and for the record, I'm not all for the cutisly prolongation alert on Zofren. That was basically for studies and during chemotherapy, not for the gen population. So that's another whole discussion for another day. <laughs> um, and I will post all the notes. Like Amanda was amazing. She posted different disease states and common en- enzymes as a refresher for most of us. But I guess my question as reviewing this, like at what point being a floor pharmacist or pharmacist rounding on the unit, do you go to that provider? Like, Hey, at what point do we need to consider genetic testing? So there's two approaches. So ideally, as a pharmacogenic pharmacist, I would love everyone to preemptively get genetic testing. This is something that should be done earlier rather than later, because you also have to think about when you the orders to ACM creatinine or get some blood work done a patient, the turnaround time of that is within a few hours. If you order genetic testing, it is not within a few hours. We're talking three to five days minimum for these results to come back. So, so if you do need something done urgently, you can't get it done. So that is something to think about ideally to get this results preemptively. When you really start to think about ordering it for patients is those who are are not responding to a medication or they're having side effects at normal standard doses. Those are usually the two population groups, or you can maybe do some targeted groups. Potentially, if you think maybe um, some races maybe are more prone to having, say, having a low, no function allele, maybe you could just test those patients as a way if you're just starting out. But generally, I would always recommend preemptive testing just because of that turnaround time. It's just too long. If there really is an urgent need for it, it needs to be done sooner rather than later. So why don't they do it screen for everyone? Is there a cost concern? Absolutely. There's a hundred percent cost concern, which is one of the actual biggest barriers to implementing pharmacogenetics. So it comes down to insurance. A lot of insurances do not cover pharmacogenetics. There is some insurance will cover it for some reasons. Generally, the most common reason for it to be covered is going to be regarding TPNT, regarding um, oncology, or CYP2D6 for psychiatry. Those are the two biggest reasons it would be covered. Any other reason, the coverage is quite low. Uh, and I, I guess that's like just through their insurance, I'm assuming, right? So it's done mm-hmm. like hospitals can negotiate and do it in-house and include it in their DRG package, right? So that also comes to another question is if you have to make sure that the hospital wants to be paying for that because genotyping a patient is not cheap. It's not, it's definitely gone down. It has gotten a lot more affordable, but it's also can still be quite costly, especially if you allow free reign of genetic testing where maybe it's not appropriate for a patient or even, even the worst case scenario, duplicate testing. 
which can occur if you don't have the right clinical decision support created. Yes. Uh, ballpark, how much genetic testing costs? So it just depends where you go through. I have seen patients go through Quest, got two genes done, and it was over $1,000 with insurance. Mm-mm. And there was nothing we could have done because I had no idea it happened. I had a physician reach out to me. I was like, what, what am I supposed to do? And unfortunately, they had reached out way too late at that point. So it just depends on what lab you're going to and how much it should, how much it could cost and in your insurance. Well, the other thing too is that a lot of us are focusing on hospital readmissions. So I think if you could focus on these high risk patients, like you can justify a thousand dollar test because the average cost for a readmission is like seven to $14,000. So like kind of like what you said, like, even though it's unfortunate trial and error, but if you're able to recognize this being like a high risk of readmission, yeah, definitely screen them. Because by the time you get the results back, they're already back in your emergency department where mm-hmm. most of our listeners are too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and right, lifetime results. They're lifetime results. You should never be re-getting your pharmacogenic testing done again. Uh, that's sometimes I see people make comments like, oh, these results came back normal this time. These results came back also as normal. And I don't want to be seeing that because they, they should stay normal. There's no reason why they should have a differences in their genotype to phenotype information. So that's just another type of teaching point you have to teach the healthcare providers about is that you shouldn't be ordering this more than once. Very nice. And I really appreciate the brief overview overview on pharmacogenomics. So I'm already ready to take this back over to my site. Um, very competent, very skilled, Amanda. Like, So what is the training like to be this PGX pharmacist specialist? So pharmacogenetics is quite new and there's quite a few pathways to get there. So right now, pharmacogenetic testing like, sorry, pharmacogenics, like teaching and learning wise, it is now implemented in pharmacy schools. As you did mention, though, most of the time, it's usually an off mention, one question on an exam. It's not really prioritized in most schools, unfortunately, at this point. So to really get that type of training you need, there's a few routes. And it's depending if you want to go clinical research. So I could just talk about clinical. So you can go, you have to do a PGY-1 that's going to be required. So just doing a general PGY-1. And then you can do a PGY-2 that's specialized in pharmacogenomics, or you can do a fellowship. And those are your two routes after a PGY-1. There's also the option you can go the oncology route of PGY-1 to PGY-2, but that's going to be more associated with the somatic genetic testing versus germline genetic testing, which is what I do. Okay, got it. And what are the differences between the two? So germline is what you are born with. That is from your mom and dad. Somatic is going to be cancer. So the tumor itself. Got it. Okay, perfect. Oh, there's so much that we don't know. This is great. Um, So with all this extra training, so what's the job market looking for you? So when it comes to job market, a lot of them are going to be either with actual companies that are doing pharmacogenetic testing, or it's going to be areas that are part of an academic medical center. So usually associated with the college or they're going to be institutions that got some type of funding or grant to help implement it. That's usually the ones that are currently hiring, um, but you can go into different potentials. I have them listed here. So really you can go the academia path, which you can do the research or clinical, which is then you can do the hospital path, which usually you'd be considered the pharmacogenomics program leader, which would inquire you to interpret the results, make clinical recommendations, and help keep the clinical decision support. So the electronic health record, making sure the information is being displayed as discrete. So being able to fire off clinical decision support and easily accessible to all healthcare providers. Um, then there's the pharmacogenomics companies. So there's something like one ohm is a really big one that people know about. And you can even go the FDA route. So you can work for industry or regulatory organizations regarding pharmacogenomics. There's a really a lot you can do for it. It just depends how much um, actual patient care you want to do or how much research you want to do. Oh, wow. Um, 
So what does the next five to 10 years look like in pharmacogenomics? What do we need to be look, looking out for on the horizon? So in the next five to 10 years, I do believe that a lot of the academic medical institutions will probably be the first ones to start implementing. And that just comes down to funding and having available staff to do so. And the next is going to be insurance reimbursement. So if insurance reimbursement really starts to increase, I believe the uptake will be a lot faster just because that is a huge concern regarding money. I and mean, that comes down to money most of the time when it comes to implementation. Once it's been implemented and we're able to actually get past that barrier, I'm hoping in the next five to 10 years, patients coming to hospitals will already have their pharmacogenetic test results available and are already uploaded into electronic health record with clinical decision support available for the physicians and healthcare providers ordering testing. That way they're getting those alerts at the moment they're prescribing a medication that has a relevant gene drug pair. So that is really what I'm hoping for the next five to 10 years. They're really shifting from this reactive testing method where a patient who has failed to SSRIs, now we're ordering PGX testing, to shifting to getting the test ahead of time. And then if they need a medication in the future, we have the results available. I, I agree with you more, especially from my standpoint, trying to prevent hospital readmissions and everything and optimizing patient care. So I, I guess this question is more so for me, like, because what I'm noticing is I like this and ambulatory care kind of go a little bit hand, hand in hand a little bit because you're trying to manage the patients directly. So what's the likelihood of, I, I guess, is this going to be moving more into outpatient or you see the service being more of an inpatient service? So that's a great question. So my current practice site is outpatient. So I'm physically seeing patients in a clinic outpatient, but I still see patients inpatient, you would say remotely. So I get consulted. So anytime a patient gets admitted to the hospital and they have a PCI and they order CYP2C19, I get an alert sent to me. And I will place a consult note for the physician regarding the patient's results and how they expect clopidogrel to respond. So that's usually what we're doing currently, just because there is, we get a lot of genetic testing done here. So we don't physically see the patients. We just use electronic health record and we use the patient's genotype, the phenotype to help provide guidance to physicians and which we then place into the medical records. So anyone can see it if they're inpatient or outpatient, but actually physically seeing patients is, is still outpatient. Um, maybe potentially could shift to inpatient, but right now it's just outpatient. Yeah. And the unique thing, and from what it sounds like in your training, because like, and I'm sorry to compare to AMCARE, but I know that's like what most of the student listeners are familiar with right now, unfortunately, like, and your PGY2 and AMCARE per se, like they're, yeah, you're being trained, right. To be an ambulatory care pharmacist, but you're also trained to build out a service line because <laughs> the job market for being an ambulatory care pharmacist is also limited. So was, would your training, would you say be somewhat similar? Like a portion of your training would be that wherever, like you're leaving somewhere to go build out this PGX service line? Absolutely. So my program and any pharmacogenics program you go to, the point of doing these programs is to teach you how to implement. So I've gained the skills to build a clinic at my next institution and help build clinical decision support to make sure where it's integrated and usable data. Um, I hate to derail this conversation, but as a PGX pharmacist, the thing that's most frustrating is when we get pharmacogenic results and the upload in something called the media tab, which is basically this PDF that gets lost and no one ever checks the PDF file. So we are trying oh, to help like to make sure. it's like an outpatient lab thingy. Yeah, I yes. know what you're talking about. No one ever checks it. It's gone. It's It doesn't even exist because when you have to build clinical decision support, it doesn't recognize that. It's not a searchable term. So if you're using Cerner or Epic and you search PGX or like SIP enzymes, it's not going to pop up versus if you have it in the actual results section, you can actually pull that result to actually make clinical decision support. So yes, part of my position is learning how to build my own clinic, how to bill, how to write proper notes that are based off the highest level of evidence, how to perform research, quality improvement, and implementation within the electronic health record. So I think it's like a, 
the role is very dynamic. It's mm-hmm. clinical and administrative, which I like to dabble in both. That's why I like my job. So I guess what portion of your role is administrative? Like if you had to give me a percentage, what portion is administrative versus what percentage is clinical? Like, like I guess clinical being directly involved in patient care. So I physically see patients for about four hours a week. Um, then I'm doing remote clinical care potentially upwards of 20 to um, 20 hours to 30 hours a week. And then my actual work regarding clinical decision support, implementation, and trying to get things running um, very, very much depends on if we're trying to implement a new gene drug pair or if we're trying to implement a new clinic. So it can vary, but at least every single week I'm dedicating at least a day of some type of work regarding implementation. Oh, nice. So if we're on the side of something like, like a 70, 30, 80, 20, like majority of it being clinical? Yep. So certainly my position is mostly clinical and that's the way I wanted it to be. I really enjoy actually seeing patients and providing clinical recommendations or sending the information to the physicians to help improve patient care. That is fantastic. Um, Well, that's all the questions I have for you today. I really appreciate brief overview. I love you and bring it back and we can uh, hype in this myth about uh, omeprazole versus Plavix. I love to geek out about that a little more because that was a drug information question everywhere I went back in my day. <laughs> um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Amanda, they can follow you on LinkedIn, right? You're on. Yes. Uh, yes. They are can. there any other social media platforms you're on? Nope. I am a hermit. So I am only on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> you have to get on Twitter. We have so many followers on Twitter and they like the additionally like share the nuggets and journals and articles. It's actually really neat. So, uh, our Twitter fam will, will uh, heavily recruit you and get some PGX recognition. Um, yes, you could follow me guys up. Uh, farm so hard underscore os on twitter and of course you can look me up on linkedin as well and thank you guys for listening in and keep farming hard whatever she's looking for it isn't in there